Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 25th episode, it's part two of a very special event, in which I talk to the Double Clicks. In case you didn't know, the Double Clicks are a nationally touring, billboard charting, nerd band with a cello, a meowing cat keyboard, and songs about dinosaurs, cats, Netflix, space, Dungeons and Dragons, and feelings. They're promoting their wildly successful Kickstarter for their amazing new album, Love Problems, but more on that later. This week, I'll be talking to Aubrey Doubleclick about the 1965 album Rubber Soul by a little band you might know called The Beatles. Along the way, we discuss how Telly might be the perfect Muppet for 2017, about when is the right time to run for the hills clutching the master tapes of your album, and how a banana costume can be a secret weapon for dealing with the world. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. For those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? <laughs> My name is Aubrey. I'm of the double clicks. I play the cello and get to ha- just like really enjoy being in the band, the double clicks. I live in Portland, Oregon and great question. I make music. I make music and tour around and play the music and sometimes make funny videos, which is great. Excellent. Videos that contain costumes. It's true. I, I asked Angela about it, and she said, you got to ask Aubrey about that. So, the banana costume. Yes. What was the genesis there? <laughs> My partner is really into Halloween, and we were going to go to a Halloween party, and I have always, historically, in my childhood, I've always waited to the last second and never quite been satisfied, though I'm very excited about costumes. And so I went to the local Target, which is a big box store. They had a banana costume. I got the banana costume. My partner got a pizza costume and a giant foam pirate hat. (laughs) That was just the best Halloween I'd ever had because I was just so happy to be in the banana. It wasn't ambiguous. I didn't have to explain to anyone what was going on. It's just like, obviously, I'm a banana. And it felt so good. It's great for dancing. It just makes me really happy every time I see a a picture of myself in the banana costume. So it really, it was a lot of build up to being the best Halloween celebration I'd ever had. And then I started wearing it at shows. And that just kept getting better until we did a library show at a library. It was going pretty well, but people 
did, like there was a lot of people there and a lot of them had never heard the double clicks before which is always just like we'll see if you'll relate to any of this and by the time we got to the part where I put on the banana costume and dance around everyone was just smiling ear to ear and it was like very satisfying I've also enjoyed like it just to connect with teenagers that are hanging out at the library and bring them joy was an amazing like just great feeling it was like okay I feel very uncomfortable I feel so much more comfortable on stage right now instead of wondering are you judging me it's like no you're like yeah you're wearing a banana costume and owning it and I celebrate that it's like yes this is everything I've ever wanted so yeah banana banana costume I I love it a lot I wear it at conventions and it's fun to walk around because it's warm which if there's the, the convention hall is air conditioned I will put on the banana costume and be much happier, much more comfortable. And then sometimes children will want a picture with the banana costume, not because they know who I am, but because it's a great costume. <laughs> oh, they know who you are. They know you're a banana. They know who I am. It's very identifiable. It's like, banana, yeah! And so, uh, yeah, I took a picture with a tiny little a link once who was fighting me. It was adorable. And also just Walking by, everybody has a catchphrase that they will yell out at somebody wearing a banana. Like, or they'll just whisper, look a banana. And uh, <laughs> that is also very satisfying. It's like not really catcalling, more just like the banana is bringing out a response in them that they cannot contain. So they will yell out, I'm a banana. And it's great. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, yeah. Having that Halloween costume that you have to explain is one of those very particular annoyances. Yeah. That it's like, okay, especially if it's one you've really worked on and you think, I'm going to make this just like the most awesome, perfect costume of whatever it's going to be. And then I have to sit there the whole night and go, no, I'm, I'm this, you know? Yeah. When I was in, this is a formative experience, is that I was a wrestling fan when I was a kid and I'm still a wrestling fan now. But when I was 10 in Montreal, I decided I was going to dress up as one of the Bushwhackers. And the Bushwhackers were a crazy funny team and they would wear like white and black camo pants and like, you know, like a tank top and have like, you know, scruffy faces and they would walk around like doing a funny dance. And I did that and my dad even found me some black and white camo pants that I could wear, which I'd never seen in any of the shops. I have no idea where he found them in Fredericton, New Brunswick, and then brought them to Montreal. Then went around and no one knew what I was. Oh, it's just like, oh, no. you're a burglar. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really not. <laughs> so disappointing. But yeah, I was also happy to hear yeah. that the banana costume is warm because that's the other pitfall is having to dress for weather. Oh, yes. And make sure your costume can deal with that. Right. I have a, a picture of me at age, I think it's age five or six. I was in a Superman costume that was stretched over a snowsuit. No. Oh. Because, because it was <laughs> Canada and it was October. <laughs> Yeah, very cold. Let's start with the basics then. Whereabouts did you grow up? I like to say that where I was really getting all my formative experiences was till I was age nine, we lived in Bowling Green, Kentucky, which is right in the middle of the states, sort of right above Tennessee. So close to Nashville. Our nearest neighbor was a mile away. So it wasn't like a neighborhood with a bunch of children in it. It was mostly just a house surrounded by farms. <laughs> I'm looking at pictures now and I assume seeing a lot of green. It's very green. It's very, very green. And there's a, that particular, where we were located wasn't 
very close to any cities, so there wasn't really a lot of light pollution, which made the sky seem really big, which is cool. You saw a lot of stars, and it would be very dark if you drove around at night. Just like, wow, it's really dark out there. It's, that's what's happening. Yeah, although I'd like to point out that the Google response is, it's like, I see a fountain, I see some aerial views, and I see a Corvette dealership? What? Sure. All right. Yeah. I thought for a second it was like a Sonic burger, and I was going to make a joke about that, but I'm like, no, no, it's a Corvette dealership. Bowling Green is kind of like the biggest city nearby, and it's the thing, if anybody's going to know anywhere, that's very South Kentucky, right on the border, not close to the, not really close to anything. It's like three mi- three hours drive to the nearest airport. There's a certain thing with people who are from small towns where it's not just, I can't just say where I'm from. I must say that the closest thing to the thing that I am from. Right. Yes. So it's like, you know, I I spent some time in Massey, Ontario, which was a tiny little town that had 1,100 or 1,300 people, uh, depending on which sign you looked at. And it was next to Walford that was even smaller, and it was an hour from Sudbury, and Sudbury was two hours from Thunder Bay. So depending on on (laughs) who knew what, you'd be like, oh, where are you from? Oh, um, I was living in in Massey, Ontario. Sorry, where? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's near Espanola. Where? Oh, it's near Sudbury. Uh, It's on the way to Thunder Bay. And I go, oh, that bit of Ontario that no one goes to. You're like, yeah, yeah, that'll do. (laughs) And of course, we moved to Massachusetts, which no one knows. There's too many towns in Massachusetts. And so we just say we're from Boston because then we can stop the conversation after that. We're done. Don't have to talk about, oh, it's next to this city, which is next to this city. Yeah, for sure. It's like, like, no, there's just like, I'm I'm done. We're from Massachusetts. Do you know where Boston is? Great. We did it. (laughs) It's that place. You know the place. Yeah. In Bowling Green. And I am yes. specifically not going to make any jokes involving a massacre at Bowling Green. Oh, right. I am yeah. not going to say that, and I'm going to move the hell on. Um, <laughs> okay. So, so in Bowling Green, what sort of kid were you? I spent a lot of time listening to Rubber Soul, but I listened to a lot of music, watched a lot of Sesame Street, and ran around in outside did a lot of imagining the future because there was a lot of downtime to have to my own thoughts. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. So on Sesame Street, like, who was your character? Were you an Ernie? Were you a Bert? Were you a Telly? Oh, it's definitely Ernie. I got Ernie as a present, like a puppet version of Ernie when I was two years old. It's like never looking back. Ernie had great hair. Ernie had a great laugh. I was never alone because Rubber Ducky was always there, so Ernie had it figured out. <laughs> yes. I was saying to a previous guest that a lot of kids will spend their childhood thinking they're an Ernie and then get to be adults and find out they're a bird. Oh, sure. Just leave me alone. Yes. I have my bottle caps. I have my twiddle bugs. Just right. don't, don't, don't eat cookies in the bed, please. Right. Not like Ernie and Bert are all that different. They're almost like two sides of the same person. Yeah, totally. They, and they bring out the best in each other, which is, which I love. I love that they, they both recognize that they need their own alone time and they can't hang out all the time. But if they didn't have each other, like that, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have nearly as much fun. Yeah, absolutely. I, I realized as I was saying Ernie and Bert and I threw in Telly just because I just occasionally remember that Telly Monster is a thing. Yeah, Telly. I think, <laughs> oh my gosh. Poor Every Telly. time I go back and look at Telly, it's just like, oh, Telly, it's going to be okay, Telly. Somebody <laughs> really needs to sit you down and just let you process some emotions because you are running so high on anxiety right now. Oh, oh Telly. Oh, yeah. I think in, in this year of our Lord 2017, Telly Monster is so appropriate because he, oh, he's just a bundle of nerves. Just everything yeah. is a problem. Like, if you look, I think it's the first animated GIF is, is Telly like like face palming or like clutching at the air like, oh God, 
Oh no! What is happening? Yeah. Oh, Telly. <laughs> Telly, yeah, just they, they, they. Telly really needs everything to be okay, but also sees a problem in everything. So nothing's ever gonna be good enough, which <laughs> just adds to the pile of anxiety. Telly, it's gonna be okay. Maybe, maybe Telly could use some cannabis and chill out yeah. a little bit. Just, just it'll be okay. Just make some chamomile, chamomile tea. Make something yeah. that you have a prescription for, and it'll yep. be okay. <laughs> you just want, just like you know, get him some some classical music, or just like you know something really chill, like put on some some Planet Earth or something for Telly, and just like just yeah, cool man. But then of course they'd get to Planet Earth too, and that bit where the lizard's running from the snakes, and Telly would be not okay with that. No, absolutely not. <laughs> that is terrible. No. Yeah, Telly just Telly would like to be involved, and is the nice thing is that Telly's not shrinking into the ground and hiding. They're they're still out there. They're trying stuff. They're trying to do stuff, and they're also just actually saying out loud all the things that some people just have buzzing around in their head, which is really healthier than hiding all of that. And really so. important, come to think of it. Yeah, cool. You actually brought up one of the, the topics that you wanted to talk about, so. Tell me about Rubber Soul. Rubber Soul. It's an album by the Beatles that I realized I went back and listened to it. This is where all my musical influence is from. <laughs> it's just like this. I, this is the album I remember the most listening to growing up in Kentucky. Drive My Car was the song. It's like, this is exactly what a song needs to be. And that's all I want. And most of the songs are less than three minutes long. A lot of them don't have like an intro. They're like I've realized I have a lot of opinions about how song structure works, and they kind of come back to this album. And I have it just like brings out so many feelings and also thoughts listening to this album. Yeah, I, I think everyone has that stage where you start off and you like some of the early Beatles stuff because you can sing along. You like. You know, you you like the the red version of the collected works of the Beatles rather than the blue version, and I think Rubber Soul is right at that tipping point where it's right where they started to say, all right, we can just do we can do interesting things, we can do fun things, we can, you know, make people think we can, they're going to have some depth to it. But before they completely fell off into like complete navel gazing up the own butt kind of thing. So, like, just looking at this, I mean, you're right. None of these songs are over three minutes. Oh, wait, You Won't See Me is 318. Oh, okay. Which is a very, very slim (laughs) margin over. And, yeah, there's no fat on this album. No. They're very short solos. They don't start off with long intros building up to singing. Usually they just start singing. And they've got great harmonies. And it is very, like, you can understand every word that's happening. It is mixed so that the vocals are a central focus. The words are very, very important. And they're, that's how you get through the song, even though also it's got amazing instruments going on. I love all the bass lines. I love Ringo Starr's drumming. And I, I love all the amazing little guitar riffs that go on. It's just, I realize I, I have... I love, I love it. I love it so much. And also, there's weird songs on it. It's like it ends on a very violent song, which is not unusual for the Beatles, certainly. Where it's just like, yeah, uh, you better uh, run for your life because uh, if I f- find you with another man, I will kill you. Basically, I'd rather you would be dead. So that's just like, wow. Okay, well that's a scary character. But also, Maxwell Silverhammer is all about murder as well. So. I think Maxwell Silverhammer was the first Beatles song that I heard where someone told me, oh, this is the Beatles. This is important. Listen to this. <laughs> it was a camp counselor who was oh, like wow. 10 years old, and he had his little 
tiny boombox that he had brought that he had smuggled into the camp and he used to play Beatles songs for the rest of the cabin and he would say listen to Maxwell Silver, Silver Hammer he's killing people be <laughs> like 10 isn't it great yeah my eyes as big as saucers as this god that would have been in like 1991 so this mm-hmm. this teen in 1991 thinking Maxwell Silver Hammer was the coolest edgiest song because they were talking about killing people yeah <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, but Run For Your Life has that that tone that you sometimes get with the only other comparison, and this is a weird comparison, and I apologize, is the kind of thing you get with, like, Misfits songs, where you're, like, kind mm-hmm. of bopping your head, thinking, oh, this is like a pop-punk song, and there's little harmonies in here. Oh, yeah, and they're talking about murdering a baby. Yeah. That disconnect, that cognitive dissonance of, I am bopping to my head to a song called Die, Die, My Darling. And it's like, oh, <laughs> oh, that's weird. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yeah, I love it. And they have two different songs about being seen or seeing someone on this album. Like, I've got You Won't See Me and I'm Looking Through You. And uh, anyway, I was, I'm very ex- Yes, you had a question. You know where this is going. Why don't you take over? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, and this may not be a question with an answer, but looking at this album, this is an album from 1965. Someone your age growing up when you did, was there a particular reason that this album from 1965 from you know like 30 years before really struck a chord with you it's okay to say no (laughs) my parents were big Beatles nerds Mm -hmm. and like that was the epitome I'm pretty sure my dad would have liked to be a Beatle and so I've grown up around a lot of Beatle trivia and this was the album I feel like there were other Beatles albums, there was even kids music albums that had songs by like Paul McCartney on it yeah this was like music was very important because my dad played guitar and we took piano lessons for instance like probably since before we could read so music seemed like this is this is important I'm gonna internalize this and dancing feels great and yeah I feel like even from I probably have listened to this album since I was two years old and someone singing the words beep 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 yeah really was just like, I'm going to listen to that a million times a day. I would like to continue to play that song. Let's just play (laughs) drive my car and then go back and play it again. Because I believe we had this as a CD. So it was just, we're going to listen to this. This is so catchy. I think it started there and then I grew into thinking more about other songs (laughs) past the first track. (laughs) Sure. And yeah. the thing is that, one, that beep, 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 yeah, is just this killer hook. It just, like, it sticks yeah. like a dart. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I'm going to actually, I'm going to put the headphones down for a second and grab something. But, one sec. So I have, speaking of Paul McCartney and kids' music. Yes. I have a picture disc, which I just got off my shelf, which is of Paul McCartney and Rupert the Bear. Oh, wow. Singing We All Stand Together. I found it because my record collection grew because I was a penniless person on a student visa in Australia, and I found a pile of records on the corner, as you do when someone moves. Yes. And I went and stole a milk crate and filled it up and brought the records home, even though I had no way of playing them. Because I, cause it's like I remember looking and going, oh, these are some amazing albums. I just I want to have this music in my life. Yeah. And it was maybe six months later when I finally saved up to buy a terrible, like, $50 record player. And listened and realized some of them were unlistenable and terrible. But this was in that first pile, and I've kept it. It's now been 13 years, but I've kept it. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Look at him. Oh, wow. That's so cool. It's We All Stand Together and The Frog Song. Wow. Also, I kind of love that thing that records sometimes do, where they they won't refer to side A or side B. 
they'll refer to this side and the other side. Oh, nice. I think I have, I forget which album it is, but it's like a two album set. And so it's got four sides. And on the one album, it'll say this side, the other side, this side of the other record, the other side of the other record. <laughs> and on the second record, it says see first record. Very nice. <laughs> so go on. You were talking about the Beatles. I mean, even Norwegian Wood is a very dark song. Somebody posed it to me maybe five years ago, and I hadn't thought about it in a long time. I'm like, don't you think that the end of the song is them just lighting that person's apartment on fire? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> That sounds about right. This always seemed like a really weird, creepy song and a slightly unsettling for some reason. Yeah, a lot of very honest and not just like, I want to hold your hand songs on this on this album. And recently, this story I heard about Rubber Soul that very much connected because I was struggling to finish a song that I cared very deeply about and needed to release. It was basically sitting there going like, you got to finish putting the cellos on it and and get it all put together so that it can get on the get out into the internet for other people to listen to and I couldn't I was emotionally couldn't do it and I was first shutting down all my creative parts my dad was saying well it's like when they finished rubber soul Paul McCartney literally stole the masters and ran off into the country for like a week because he said it's too out of tune we can't release it and he was convinced that it was an awful album and you couldn't put it out into the world. And I was like, okay, so this is a thing that happens to people. They get... <laughs> it's too insular, yeah. It's too, it's too, whatever happens in that, in the creative process where it's just like, I can't, I can't put it out. It doesn't sound good enough. Rubber Soul was great. They, they <laughs> could put it out. It's okay. You're not always thinking very clearly at the, because put so much time and effort and all of, the feelings into your album and then oh gosh i can't the letting go is so hard (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's something about when you're completely dedicated to something or even just like kind of in your own head about something when you stop taking an outside stimulus things tend to be amplified or get so much more import to them than when you're dealing with other people on the regular there was a oh god i'm reaching back there was an, an old radio lab episode where they were talking about how the brain hears music and how you... And it was talking about the, the Rite of Spring. Oh, yeah. And stuff like that and how there were riots at the first show. Yeah. And the, because it was so dissonant that people just couldn't take it and they just started, you know, punching each other and throwing chairs and stuff. <laughs> and it was relentless and that was the other thing. Uh, I'll put in a little clip at the beginning of the Rite of Spring because <laughs> as someone who at the time was being like, I should listen to more classical music, like added it to my Spotify playlist and it came up on random and I was just like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> Then they finished off the show by pointing out that that music was put into Fantasia. And as far as they knew, it didn't cause any kids to, you know, punch each other and riot and burn down buildings. (laughs) And the, the example was that there was a guy who was an archivist and he was basically spent like weeks listening to Baroque music and then Mm -hmm. came up and someone was playing Bach and he found it like incredibly just like unpleasant and tuneless and weird. And he's like, oh "Oh, God, what is this? And they're like, it's Bach, man, calm down. (laughs) 
It's like he's been three weeks in a sound booth listening to nothing but, you know, madrigals. Yeah. So, yeah, the the idea of being Paul McCartney locked in a sound booth, you know, listening to the same, was it 12 songs? I think it's 14. The same 14 songs over and over and over again. You will always hear that bit where you can hear a finger on a string and it'll, like, stab you like a knife oh yeah and it's not that everything on the album is in tune it's just like it still all works it's very pleasant to listen to but yeah having been in the studio and you were there for every note that was played individually before it got put together and mixed into it yeah you're gonna hear all the things that nobody else can hear (laughs) oh gosh there's a theory i remember having explained to me when i was working in a call center for the first time and them explaining that like how to not get frustrated with people who ask the same question oh wow and it's the idea that they, they would bring up that you know that dice have no memory and so if you think about it you've been asked that question 60 times today and you've given the same answer the person giving you that question has asked that question once. Yep. And so they they are not tired of that situation. And so you need to give them the benefit of the doubt as opposed to, ah, all right, look, here's what you got to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, if, if you're hearing, you're used to hearing every note, especially all the stuff that got cut out, you know that that particular solo was preceded by a 40-minute argument about how it shouldn't be in there and it doesn't need to be there. Yeah. And so you've attached all that feeling to it. Yeah. Wasn't this one of the last ones that they recorded all together in the studio? I don't actually know the, oh, the history. That would make sense. I remember going to, I think when I was in eighth grade, we went and to the Beatles Museum in London. They had the inner, the display where you just walked through a room and it was like screens playing, like the footage from the stadium shows where the women cannot stop screaming and all you hear is screams. And it was like... <laughs> This is demonstrating exactly why they stopped touring, because nobody was listening. They're just screaming. <laughs> and and just thinking about, wow, that's such a different... Then they stopped touring and just made albums and put it out that way, which is very different. And I love watching Paul McCartney, whatever documentary they made of his tour a few years ago many years ago probably at this point and he was talking about how everybody knows these recordings really well but I only played the song once (laughs) and it was recorded and then I didn't listen to it again so I have to relearn how to sing these songs that I haven't listened to because it's like I never played them live before all these years later he's doing tours and playing Beatles songs that like everyone else has listened to a million times he's getting worried about forgetting the words (laughs) (laughs) and I think that's different with Paul as an entertainer where he is happy to hit those beats for you and I think it was around his his Vegas show and apologies this is a long bow to draw but it's I was listening way back when to I think it was Penn Jillette was on a had a little podcast on Revision 3 and he would do these little like just conversations and he had seen Paul McCartney and he had seen Bob Dylan both doing their Vegas show in like a week of each other oh wow and he said the difference is that Bob Dylan has no respect for your memory of Bob Dylan whereas Paul McCartney is very happy to be like look I know this this song will make you feel good I will give you this bit of this song I'll make it a little different sometimes but Mm -hmm. I will in fact give you this bit of this thing to make you happy (laughs) that's that seems about right the other way this album like being the epitome of music to me has always been like I went to college for music. Okay. And I always felt like I was one of the lesser music nerds cuz there was a lot of people who had a lot of musical knowledge or were very obsessed with whatever instrument they were playing. And then I remember one of those people that I met like the first semester of being there had never listened to the Beatles before. Oh boy. And I was like, 
Okay, so the, I, I do have a wealth of knowledge that some other people at this college do not. So that is my musical nerddom. And also just always holding on to the fact that it's like, well, Paul McCartney never learned to read music, and he did just fine. <laughs> really? Did, did he only <laughs> like, like read from tabs, or did he just learn from playing? Like, I, I didn't know that, actually. Yeah, it was all by ear. Oh, wow. Completely by ear. Cool. Yes, and you can watch him. They like There was another documentary. I've watched several documentaries <laughs> about Paul McCartney where he's they hired him to write a magical for the opening of some cathedral mm-hmm. in Great Britain or a school, maybe. And so there's like a boys' choir and there's other sort of operatic singers joining and the small orchestra. And Paul McCartney is supposed to write it. So they watch him write it by he's sitting at a piano and he plays it and he sings it to the person writing down writing out the orchestration like paul mccartney does not write one note down it is that person sitting next to them and he and he writes like a madrigal where there's lots of different parts happening all the time and just like going look see he didn't <laughs> obviously the person writing the orchestration really knows how to write music but the paul is coming up with all the things so just keeping that in the back of my head as I learned all of music theory going like, this is important, but also don't not completely necessary in order to actually connect to people through music. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And also, I suppose some, some things would be difficult. I mean, although I'm sure you guys are now used to, you know, scoring for a cat keyboard. Oh, sure. But I remember hearing Zoe Keating talk about being like, okay, I used to write for a band, but how do you write, hey, I want you to thump your hand on the side of your cello in this way and keep the beat and kind of improvise on it like this. How do you put that on a piece of music? Yeah. You just write thud, thud, thud under the under the bar a little bit. They'll know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then when moving out to Portland after going to music college and playing with people who didn't go to college but still were playing music and realizing just like it's so much more impressive as a musical experience to not be reading music while you're playing it just for the audience like visually and also just like it feels like that's something in between you and the audience to have the music on the stand so just like going okay well we're gonna most of the time we're gonna learn it by ear anyway like I'm gonna write my own parts and I'm gonna do it by ear and maybe I'll have some notes about a, a teacher from Reed who plays the cello was like what what are you reading on the sta- stand and I'm like well basically I have written out the chord progression and I know <laughs> and now I know where I am and uh, it's just the letter G and the letter E minor <laughs> it's like it's like it's like wow you're really no I haven't written any any notes on a score for this <laughs> performance it's something that like I, I don't know if it I, I always presumed it was just me but when I was in high school band, I, like, I'm very much someone who learns through repetition. I've never been someone yes. who, can, who, who will learn something by thinking about it. I, I'm doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. Eventually, I can get good enough that I can do it without thinking. And I played the drums when I was a teenager. And so I would, the, rather than after a certain point of practicing, I would stop reading the actual music. And I would be listening to the other parts. And I would know when I would come in. And I'm like, OK, this is this bit. And my cue for it is when that trumpet player will go da 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 and that's where I come in. See, a little bit of Fallbrook March there just for fun. <laughs> I actually went and looked that up, and the only, like, because I was like, yeah, I remember playing that. I wonder how that sounds being played by not a grade 7 band. Right. <laughs> and so, but then I, I looked on YouTube, and the only thing on YouTube is, like, other 7th grade bands playing it really terribly. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's so funny. This idea of... Uh, and I suppose it's something that I've heard a lot of improvisers talk about, which is where you are, it's, it's sort of like that the sort of crossroads between improvising and clowning, where it's like you're 
feeding off your partner, you're feeding off the audience, and there's a different like that. That is more relatable than all right. I have this script in my head, and I will stick to this script, and that is that is who I'm slave to. Rather than okay, something is working. I can develop on that. Yay. Yeah, and I totally relate. I recently went to the the symphony in Portland where they were playing Dvorak, and I had played the piece in youth symphony, but I hadn't, I didn't like remember that at all. It was just like in high school, had the youth symphony, and listening to it outside of the orchestra instead of being in it, it's like, oh, this was probably that part where I was trying to count 24 measures of rest. I could have just listened to anyone <laughs> else in the orchestra for my cue instead of just trying to sit there and count and then inevitably like have to look to somebody else to where we were actually coming in. And Bo comes up and, okay, oh, right, we're here. Yeah. <laughs> okay, here we go. Great. Yeah. I have a lot of fun making covers of popular songs mm-hmm. on cello, like adapting it for cello, which I definitely use all my music theory knowledge on, but I never write it out because I also, I do most of our recording, so I will just, okay, that's that part, and I'll just record it, and then I don't have to go through the process of writing everything and just make all the arrangements while recording, trying to make that the most efficient thing. And then somebody will inevitably be on YouTube, where's the sheet music? It's like, that's that wasn't involved. <laughs> I'm so sorry. There is no sheet music. I did try writing one of my arrangements out after the fact, and it's, I realized it's like this is hard to communicate to other people. <laughs> it's like they get, they did they weren't part of my head process when I was recording this arrangement. So it had been a while since I'd played with a quartet of other players, and yeah, communicating that on the paper is it's a challenge. Yeah, it's something like when you talk about people who are really good at something. It doesn't always equate to them being good teachers of that thing. Yeah. I mean, it's something you see in, in pretty much every profession. I mean, you can take your best salesperson, make them a sales manager, and watch them just fall apart. Your best player is not going to be your best coach. It's something that I've thought about before, especially doing this show that I do, where when you're thinking about your own story, like when you're telling yourself what happened during this time, you never need context. You never need to explain. For example... If I'm thinking of the story of my parents' divorce and my place in it, at no point do I need to say to myself, oh, hey, this happened because we were living in this place and these two things happened in the run-up. Remember that. That'll be important later. I just tell myself the story in a, a complete line because I don't need to point out those other things. And I think it's a talent that you have to develop as you get older to be like, okay, I'm letting someone else into my head. I have to give them markers so they don't get lost. Yeah. Storytelling is such a skill. Absolutely, yeah. Or even songwriting. I really, I'm excited about this new album because I felt feel like it's a point in the songs that Angela is writing, getting to the point where it's just like, it's very direct line between the concept she's trying to convey and the words that are in the song. And like the emotion, everything is very plainly written, which is such a skill because she is putting it in context and using images that there's no longer like a metaphor using Mars Curiosity rover, but like it's very much coming directly from her mind into the song. It just feels like a really great connection and I I really admire that she has, I've known her her whole life, (laughs) so watching her be able to write these things, these very honest songs is just in, impresses the heck out of me. Just saying, I, after we met in Sydney, after your amazing house show at my friend Denise's house, I thanked both of you for not playing 
imposter about the Curiosity rover because I did not need to cry in a room full of my friends. Because that got me. I was working a job I did not enjoy. And the one of the positive aspects of it was that I got a one-hour walk from my house directly through the middle of Newtown all the way to Ultima where I was working. And I would put on my big headphones and... They were noise canceling, so I didn't hear all the cars going by on the road, and I would just like listen to podcasts or music. Imposter came on, and there I was, you know, crossing the front of Sydney University with tears running down my face. And if anyone asked me, I would just no. be like, "But the rover is so sad." <laughs> I'm having rover feels. And so yes. now hearing that Angela has refined her technique, sharpened that knife, uh, I now worry for my sanity. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, uh, that's okay. Yes, I know that. It, I guess the other part is I feel like we've, <laughs> I've certainly gone to therapy, and I feel like the songs are also put in a way where there's this nice container of going. I'm not gonna put you in like I'm not gonna put your head out in underwater, and you're not, and so you'll be drowning in your in your emotions, and you won't be able to come back out. I feel like they are written in a way where you can connect to them without feeling like I'm going to be overwhelmed for the rest of the day and never mind I might as well just go back to bed I feel like they're they're like yes me too they feel like feel really good in my opinion I don't know no absolutely you're you're totally correct there there is always a bit of an uplift in just about every double click song and it's something I really appreciate that is definitely part of our mission as the band is like, we'd like people to feel good. We like songs that make us feel good. And we would like to make that part of what we do. Great. So just before we wrap up, other than the Beatles, is there any other <laughs> albums that you wanted to shout out that you wanted to say were formative to you? So, I mean, this has been a pretty music heavy episode. It has. So yeah, by all means, wait in. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, wow. I, I have prepared this one. I don't, I, I, there's... There's gonna be too many, and I'm gonna. I'm afraid I will leave somebody out if I try to just shout out one album right now. There is no judgment. If you want to just like just start saying stuff and then find something to talk about, is completely fine. Beatles on the brain. Okay, what have I been listening to lately? I want to cheat <laughs> and look at my phone, but it's okay. You can talk a bit and vamp if you want. Please. The other songs that were on that playlist that, along with Imposter, that were you know punch you directly in the liver of your feelings. So you kind of fold over quietly. Nearly Midnight Honolulu by Nico Case is one that absolutely destroys me. Yeah. And it's to the point where it is on my list of tattoos to get in the next two years. Ooh. I'm going to get a clock, which is five minutes to midnight, and with the words, don't you ever shut up. And I think that's that album itself is just like so powerful and so great. And also the Case Lang Veers the collaboration she did with, with Katie Lang and is it Laura, Laura Veers. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh. There's a reason that Best Kept Secret was one of the, like in the episode where Margaret inter- interviewed me. That was one of my outro songs because that is just, just a perfect little song. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Specifically that, that Nico Case song. One of the reasons it's so powerful is that I bought that album on vinyl mm. because it was one of those things where it's like one of the first times I saw an album with a sticker on it that says, oh, also it comes with a CD and a digital download. So I'm like, great, I will listen to this album everywhere. But because Nico Case is very smart, she had it so that there's like four songs on the first side of the album and like some are a little bit wistful and sad and some are funny and some are, are upbeat and there's Man, which is a fucking killer track. And then right at the end of side one, in the middle of the CD, but at the end of side one of the album, there's Nearly Midnight Honolulu, which is this quiet, 
song that is just like emotionally devastating. Yeah. You then you get to sit and as that song ends, you're sitting in a quiet room listening to that needle go around that run out groove of tick, tick, tick. Oh. And you're just like, oh, mm-hmm. wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My first housemate when I moved to Portland, Nico Case was one of the albums that was constantly playing in the house and the whole music it surrounds your whole body is like the arrangements are just so amazing and the melodies lifting us into different places and i just like i will just have to i only have to think about man eater to get it stuck in my head i was lucky enough with my friends jen and joel to go and see her when she played at the sydney opera house <gasps> and i was in the first balcony wow. And she sang a bit of one of her songs where she sings, I can't look at you straight on. And she powered that out and you feel it in your chest like you've just been hit with a spear. Yeah. Also, her and her and Brooke Hogan are like friendship goals. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful stuff. Sorry. That that was meant to be a segue for you and it just turned into a thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. I've been listening to a lot of Amy Mann. I get to go see her perform on a cruise ship very soon. Oh, which cool. I'm very excited about. The epitome of Southern California rock to me. All of the arrangements of her songs and how snarky and witty they are. I love it so much. And I love the way her voice sounds. Like, it's so uniquely the way she sings is so great. I love her songwriting style so much. Mm -hmm. And somebody else. I love every song that is written for Steven Universe series. And I have watched every episode of that that (laughs) show multiple times. So good. I can't believe it. It just just rocks my world. That is a a show that will bring me emotional places and also make me feel good, which definitely is just like such great. So good. I love it. I love everything they do with that show. That's one of those things where it's like, I have now had enough friends that have told me. Uh, my friend Brenton actually walked up to me and grabbed me by the shoulders and gave me a gentle shake. And he's like, Lucas, you need to watch Steven Universe. You need to. You gotta. You gotta watch it. And I went, oh yeah, there's lots of shows. <laughs> he's like, no, no, no. You need to watch Steven Universe. <laughs> it's different. <laughs> no, really, we mean it. It's like people trying to tell you to listen to Hamilton. And then you do. And then uh, you become yes. one of those people. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I, I did that too. I, I avoided it for a long time yeah. just because I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, people are talking about it. And I remember listening to that first track and thinking that it was just a little too histrionic. Yeah. Like, I'm like, dude, this is the, this is the intro mm-hmm. song. You know, pace yourself. You've got like 40 tracks to go. You're already shrieking at the top of your lungs. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, you know, I suppose this is okay. <laughs> And I think it was Pop Culture Happy Hour did like a deep dive on it. And I heard some of the later bits. I'm like, okay, I'll stick in for the long haul. And I remember, speaking of therapy, I was walking to my therapist's office and I made myself 15 minutes late because I got to the duel and had to listen to the ending and then walked straight into the office. And I was just like, oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yeah, I listened to the first time on when I was on a plane, and I already cry on planes too often, but I was just sitting there just crying. Yep. It was amazing. It's like, uh, it's like, if I saw Lin-Manuel Miranda right now, I would just I would just fall over. I can't. This is such an amazing experience, just listening to it. Yeah, I think the last time I cried on a plane, I, was, I watched Zootopia for the first time. Oh, sure. And right at the beginning of that movie, yeah. like where she's shoved down and like mm-hmm. beaten up, and her friends pull her up, and she's like... He's right. I didn't know when to quit. And I, my eyes just welled up. And I'm just like, it's so wonderful. Nah. And I'm sitting there with headphones <laughs> on. And Kimiko looks over at me. And she's like, are you okay? I'm like, this rabbit is so great. 
Like I can't even I can't even talk. Oh, oh, oh. That's so good. I love that Shakira song. Try everything. everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My friend Annie so Creighton actually was tweeting like just an hour ago and she was saying, oh, you know, this flight sucks, but at least they have Zootopia. So that's a thing. And all of her mentions were just like, wow, the airline really can try everything. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, and I couldn't help it. I'm like, the plane just doesn't know when to quit. Nice. I had I had to like join the oh. company of terrible puns. And the thing is, I'm pretty sure she didn't have Wi-Fi yeah. on the plane. So she would get, get off the plane and just find this like cavalcade of puns just come pouring through. <laughs> The movie that launched a million puns. <laughs> All right, Aubrey. Well, I am mindful of the time, so I'm going to give you a big space here where you can plug, because as I said to Angela, not an hour ago, it's, it is a big time on Planet Double Click right now. It is. So please, go into absolutely everything, all the giant projects you were doing. Oh my gosh, so many things happening, and I'm sure Angela said some of them, that, yeah, we're, we're right in the middle of our Kickstarter for our next album, Love Problems, which is what I'm really excited about. It's like our first album in a couple of years that we're getting together and these songs have been developing into just like, oh my gosh, it's it's, it's very, it's, it's a very exciting time in Double Clicks land for these songs. It's gonna be about love and also problems and science and identity and all the feelings. I'm so excited. So we're on Kickstarter right now. We've just funded our first stretch goal where we get to have an animated music video for one of our songs, which I'm so excited that that artist is working with us. We also have just released another one of the songs on YouTube. We got to work with 50 different artists that made the lyrics into pieces of art. And so the video is just, it's like, I you can you can just turn off the music and watch the art go by or go to womennomath.com and see all the amazing creators on there and learn about them and i'm gonna forget other things that we are doing because it's just it's it's gonna be a good year so if you get on our email list at the doubleclicks.com you can get on our email list or follow us on twitter at the doubleclicks it's gonna be a good time we're 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 all fired up we're ready to go you guys use crowdsourcing in a way that's always been really special. I mean, I'm thinking back to Love You Like a Burrito. Yeah. That was really fun. Which the video was just people holding burritos and looking lovely. <laughs> and to go from that to this incredibly ambitious and fantastic project where, you know, you get 50 women and non-binary people to just put together this amazing, essentially an art show in a video. Yeah. And so, yeah, everyone go and back them on Kickstarter. I'm a backer. Thank you. I got in when there was $300 left, and I thought, I have to push this over the edge. I signed on from work. Oh, my gosh. To actually, like, like in a, in a small window in the corner where I could secretly do that. <laughs> Thank you so much. And got to see Angela dancing in a shark costume. <laughs> Yay. Yep. Shark costumes. <laughs> got so many costumes all right Arby. well this has been fantastic thank you so much for coming on the show like i said to angela you know ever since mid 2013 where i saw you guys on a guest on nsfw on the twit network you've been one of my recurring favorite bands and always somewhere i can go that will make me feel good so i'm very happy to have had you on the show thank you so much it's such a pleasure to be here I'm really really excited that i got to do this
thank you very much to Aubrey DoubleClick for her time, and really to both the DoubleClicks for coming on the show and making me really happy. For her signature cocktail this week, Aubrey suggested something with scotch and something a little bit spicy. Normally, if I'm drinking scotch, I'm drinking it on its own, so feel free to substitute rye or bourbon in this particular cocktail. It'll work out just as well. And so I present the word. In a cocktail shaker full of ice, combine one and a half ounces of bourbon, three quarters of an ounce of dry vermouth, three quarters of an ounce of grapefruit juice, half an ounce of lime juice, and half an ounce of jalapeno simple syrup. This is made by boiling equal parts of water and sugar with four split in half jalapenos. When it comes to a boil, let it boil for four minutes and then strain it into a bottle and you're set. Shake vigorously and strain into a pre-chilled cocktail glass. Garnish with a lime wheel and if you're adventurous, a slice of jalapeno. In the beginning, I misunderstood, but now I get it, this drink is good. Enjoy. is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes go up every Wednesday, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. Fair warning, my Snapchat is mostly my dog and things I'm about to eat. If you'd like to directly support the show and you've got a few dollars, you can go to patreon.com slash lokified. And for as little as a dollar a month, you can get early access to episodes, physical mail, and I would really, really appreciate it. You don't have to do a dollar. You can do a lot. You can do like a million. That would be great. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to iTunes and give the show a five-star rating. It helps with discoverability, helps get new listeners, and maybe I'll get some of that nice iTunes juice. You never know. You can also write a review. You can give feedback, compliments, constructive criticism, whatever you like. It's up to you. If you like the music you've been hearing on the show, you can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou with capitals at the beginning of each word and check out our Spotify playlist. It's got a record of every song I've used on the show, all the way back to episode one, including this one. It's Drive My Car. They just said it right there. Next week, I'll be talking to Aiden Sullivan, frequent podcast guest and professional hater, all about the hidden loves and secret depths of the Minnesota ska scene. Join me, won't you? Hi, I was going to say, I feel all energized from what's going into a podcast, because normally I book these at like six in the morning, and but I've just come out of talking to Angela, so I'm like, right, I'm, <laughs> the coffee has kicked in. <laughs> what time is it there? 
Oh, uh, now it's 8.25. It's the, the oh, yeah. late in the morning that is 8.25, and I am going on a big cup of Quebec coffee and half of a honey glazed donut, so I'm all energy at the moment. <laughs> awesome! <laughs> because um, my, my girlfriend's not currently working, and so yesterday when I was at work, she uh, did a bunch of running around and like took the dog to the vet, and then on the way back, stopped by a place called Grumpy Donuts. Which does oh my gosh. incredible donuts, and also their their logo is like uh, you know a purple glazed donut with a really angry face, and they <laughs> do what I I can only say is like the platonic ideal of an apple fritter, Ooh. which is that it's as big as like your two fists together, and it's oh just like gosh. perfect, and it's the <laughs> only like I grew up in Canada and we used to like live my grandpa used to live on apple fritters and like terrible coffee, yeah, and so that I found that they had them here I was just like over the moon and so like last night we like made dinner and watched Hail Caesar and then like we got donuts afterwards so but then we ate too much dinner and couldn't eat the donuts so they're gonna be breakfast today awesome <laughs> that means donuts are a breakfast right yeah that they're totally a breakfast otherwise why would they be selling them at five in the morning true it's like yeah. Although by that rationale, chili in a bread bowl is also a breakfast. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that was the other Tim Hortons thing. Although they wouldn't sell it after 11, much to the consternation of my, my flatmate Mark, who would roll wow. in to at like, you know, just after last call in Ottawa, which is, you know, mm-hmm. quarter past two, to the, t- the 24-hour Tim Hortons and be like, I want chili and then I want to eat the bowl. Oh. And, and they would just look at him and just be like, we, we don't we don't sell it after 11. Oh. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm real sorry. I know you had this in mind, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> we grew up in a house like that. It was like right across the street, and we never noticed it because I think we were young enough and our parents like when they first bought it they were like yeah we woke up in the middle of the night because it just blasts the horn as the train goes by mm-hmm. it's like oh boy that's that's really happening <laughs> oh, at one point I was when I was working at Borders in the music section my manager had a, uh, a band that it was a uh, last waltz tribute show that they were playing and he, he like invited everyone in the in the, the store and me and my then girlfriend were the only ones that went, and so we took a three-hour train up to the mountain because he was playing at this old pub, and it was a great trip in that you know I found a, a Sex Pistols single, like a little forty-five single, oh wow, in the bar, and I asked if, if like did someone leave this, and they said no, you can have it, so it's still in my collection, and uh, it was the first time I'd ever been invited to the party after a, a live show, oh. and also the first time I ever tried beer because. I'm not sure if you would have seen it when you guys were here, but certain places in Australia will basically sell rum and coke on tap. Like they will like pull you a, a large glass of rum and coke for a certain price. Wow. Like pre-mixed. And that's dangerous. <laughs> yeah. And so I had like 10 of those over the course of this like incredibly <laughs> long last waltz show. And you know, uh, the night they blew all Dixie down and stuff and I was singing along. And then we went back to the hotel and someone handed me a beer and I had never drank beer at that point. I never liked it. And I looked down and suddenly it was empty. I'm like, huh, I guess I like beer now. It just takes 10 rum and cokes to get me there. <laughs> but yep. the uh, the hotel that we were staying at was, because accommodation, like everything in Australia, is really expensive. And so we had found this like motor lodge, like motel. Mm-hmm. And for what it lacked in telephones in the room, it made up for with dead spiders in the room. 
Oh, yay. <laughs> and you had to walk along a freeway on the little shoulder of the road to get to town. Oh, my God. The big thing I remember, coming back to what we were just talking about, is that it was next to a freeway, and on the other side of it, making a V-shape, was a train line, a freight train line. And in the very point of that V was this little motel. <laughs> In the Bermuda wow. Triangle of noisy transport. <laughs> Perfect for sleeping. Absolutely. I guess it, as long as you've had 10 rum and cokes, you'll probably be fine. <laughs> but yeah, woke up very hungover, demanded oh. waffles, and never went back. Because oh. <laughs> oh. yeah, yeah, all that sugar converts into your bloodstream and then just hangs around. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, oh. remember that dumb thing you did? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, I feel like that's... Rum and Cokes have always gotten me into trouble. And then I was like, no, don't need, don't need them anymore. Good. <laughs> Move on. I have better things I can drink now. I don't need you yeah. anymore, Rum and Coke. <laughs> rum and Coke shakes my fist at you and says, you'll be back. And I'm like, no, no, I actually no. won't. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> I like gin and tonics now. They're much cooler. Yay. <laughs> Have you read Bellwether Rhapsody by Kate Reculia? No, I'm going to write that down. A, it's a really good book. B, it's set at a music festival for teen musical prodigies. Ooh. And C, it's like a ghost story mystery mm-hmm. thing, and it's really well written. Former guest of the show, Kate Reculia. Awesome. When Margaret Willison is given a microphone, she will tell people to read Bellwether Rhapsody. <laughs>